0: Welcome. You're listening to the Sanctuary Podcast with Tellyn Chivijin. Be sure to follow us on our social media channels. You can find the Sanctuary Jupiter on all major social media platforms. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast. A number of years ago, I, I think it was actually early 2015, like January or February of 2015. It was a Saturday afternoon, and um, I led a memorial service. For a good friend of mine who had served at the church, he was an elder at the church, and he and I had become good friends, Um, and he died of cancer. And so on that particular Saturday, I was leading his memorial service at the church that I was pastoring at the time. And as I sat there and listened to testimony after testimony from his family and his friends, I got real reflective Funerals and memorial services can be really sobering. In fact, Ecclesiastes talks about that. Ecclesiastes says that uh, it's better to go to a funeral than a wedding because funerals are sobering. Funerals put you in touch with real life in a way that is sobering. And as I sat there listening to testimony after testimony from family and friends, I started thinking about all the mistakes I'd made over the course of my life. The people that I'd hurt, the the secrets that I had, and and the ways that I'd failed. I couldn't help it. I didn't want to be thinking about that stuff. But I started thinking about how badly I wanted a do-over in life. I was thinking about my life, and yes, it was filled with blessings and grace and all good things from God, but I was sitting there thinking about the ways I had blown it. The ways I had failed, the, the regrets that I had. And so I remember distinctly sitting there longing for a clean slate, a fresh start on life. And so I went home from that memorial service and I, w- I was feeling down. I was rummaging through my catalog of regrets, knowing that I couldn't go back in time and fix anything that I had broken. But I, it was Saturday, so I still had to prepare a sermon to preach the next morning. And I just... I didn't feel up for it. There have been times in my life where Saturday night or Sunday morning has rolled around and the last thing I want to do is stand up and preach for a variety of different reasons. And this was one of those occasions. I just, I didn't feel, I didn't feel up to it. There was this inner accuser telling me I didn't deserve to preach, that I'm too bad to preach, that I'd made too many mistakes, that I had failed too many times. That I was a hypocrite. I felt like a fraud on that Saturday afternoon, but I had a job to do. I was preaching through Acts at the time, and the next verses that I was scheduled to preach from were Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. So on this particular Saturday, after listening to testimony after testimony and feeling the way that I was feeling, after going to that memorial service and then coming home and feeling like a fraud as I was rummaging through all of my regrets and hearing this internal voice of accusation telling me that I shouldn't get up there and preach, that I'm too bad to be a preacher, that if people really knew who I was, they wouldn't listen to a word you said, and so on and so forth. I opened my Bible to prepare my sermon that I didn't want to preach and read these verses. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19, the verses that I just read to you. And as I read those verses, my downtrodden soul was revived. Revived. Here I was sitting there thinking, I'm not qualified for this. I mean, I, I, I know myself better than other people know me, and I, I know the real me. I'm not, who am I to stand up in front of a group of people and tell them about God I mean, I'm a sinner. I'm a, I'm a failure. Who do I think I am? And then I read these verses. And God used these verses to remind me that he only works through flawed people because flawed people are all that there are. This, these verses, and there are packs of these verses scattered throughout the Bible that God has used at different times in my life to sort of revive me, to revive my spirit, to remind me of something that's true when I desperately need to know whatever that truth is. The bad people of the Bible encourage me. I don't know if they encourage you, but when I read stories of people in the Bible, and there are a lot of them, stories of people in the Bible who lied, people who cheated, people who screwed things up, people who failed, people who fell, people who can't seem to get it right no matter how hard they try, people that God has been faithful to, and yet they're not faithful back to him. When I read stories like that, they always encourage me, always, Encourage me. Um, they, They remind me that God is in the business of pursuing and using doubters and deniers and adulterers and murderers and failures of every kind, as I said in my prayer. It's good news to me that God loves and uses weak people who fail because weak people who fail are all that there are. It's good news to me. So when I read this account of Saul and his conversion and the fact that of all the people in the world, God selected him, the person who was probably at the time least qualified to stand up. He had the least amount of credibility, especially with Christians. They were scared to death of this guy. They had heard story after story about the fact that this guy was going around trying to rid the earth of them. And yet this is the person, this bad guy is the person That God chose. I said a few weeks ago that I find it comforting that Jesus never scanned the room for the most put together person and then send that person out to tell others about him. Never once. He always sent stumblers and sinners. I find that super encouraging. Saul wasn't a good guy. Okay, I mean, these verses make it pretty clear. He he wasn't a good guy. He was a religious extremist. He arrested and killed people in the name of God. He was a well-respected and feared religious leader who thought he was serving God by getting rid of Christians. He thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was serving God by getting rid of Christians. Unlike Peter, who denied Jesus and felt horrible for it, Saul was denying Jesus in a different way and feeling great about it. He was proud of it. His religious resume is beyond question. This isn't isn't a a rule breaker kind of guy. This is a meticulous rule keeper kind of guy. His religious resume is spotless. He gives it to us in Philippians chapter 3. This is what he says about himself in Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to be confident in his religious achievements, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This guy kept the rules. He dotted his religious I's and he crossed his religious T's. This guy was serious in his devotion to God, thinking that he was serving God. He was one of those guys who always thought he was right. He was dogmatic. He was very proud of his religiosity. And he didn't just talk about it. He was willing to act on it. Now, how in the world did Paul or Saul, before he became Paul, how did, where did he get the idea that he was serving God by getting rid of Jesus' followers? Okay, it seems oxymoronic, but like a lot of religious leaders at the time, Saul was convinced that Jesus was an imposter, that he was falsely claiming to be God. And so Paul was on a mission to take out anybody who followed Jesus. For God's glory and God's honor, I'm going to get rid of these people, these Jesus followers, because he's an imposter. He was a blasphemer and I'm going to rid the earth of these people. So Saul is on his way to Damascus with legal letters giving him the authority to arrest any Christians that he meets along the way or as he gets to Damascus. And as he's riding with his religious entourage, a light shines on him and a voice calls out to him. He's knocked off his horse and struck blind. Jesus then reveals himself to Saul and gives him instructions on what to do next. Okay, that's the summarized version of the story. And as I was reading that again yesterday and this morning, I found it once again interesting that it's not the sin we know we have that keeps us from seeing God, but the goodness we think we have. Okay, There's a big difference between those two things. I think we are under the impression that what keeps us from seeing God is the sin that we know we have. But it's not the sin that we know we have that keeps us from seeing God. It's the goodness that we think we have. In one sense, before Paul was physically blind, he was spiritually blind. He couldn't see Jesus. His goodness was in the way. He thought he was a good guy. He was very proud, as I said, of his religious achievements. He was serving God. He was a minister. okay, And, uh, and yet he couldn't couldn't see Jesus, so much so that he wanted to get rid of Jesus' followers. Um, It wasn't Saul's unrighteousness that kept him from seeing God. It was his self-righteousness that kept him from seeing God. In the Bible, it's always the immoral person who gets the gospel before the moral person. Always. You see this theme throughout the Bible. The, The people who know they're weak are the ones who run to God. The people who think they're strong run away from him because they don't think they need him. It's the unrighteous younger brother in the parable the prodigal son who understands forgiveness, not the self-righteous older brother. You see this throughout, story after story, parable after parable, episode after episode. It's the people who know they're dirty that get grace, not the people who think they're clean. That's why The desperate addict is closer to the heart of grace than the devout moralist. That's why. That's why, and I've shared this here before, but I've shared it in a lot of other places. One of the great experiences I've had the privilege of having is going to recovery places where there are people struggling with a wide variety of addictions and sitting with these people. Now, thankfully, I, and when it comes to substance abuse, I haven't had... Uh, any addiction like that, but I've had my share of addictions. We all do. Uh, whether it's an addiction to approval, an addiction to acceptance, an addiction to extracting love from other people, an addiction to a good self-image, whatever the case may be, we, we have our addictions um, and thankfully, I haven't struggled with those particular addictions, but I've struggled with my own. And so sitting there with a group of people who know that they're weak is so much more refreshing to me than sitting in a room with people who think that they're strong. Way more. I mean, I, um, I've said this before, but uh, one of the things that troubles me about churches is that it's filled with... The kinds of people, in my opinion, the kinds of people that didn't flock to Jesus because they're, they didn't think they needed him that much, but when you're sitting with a group of people who know their weakness, who know their desperation, who know that they can't make it on their own, it's actually very, very refreshing, very refreshing. Um. The Pharisee is the kind of person that every church would be happy to welcome as a member. Because <laughs> he, he does everything he's supposed to do. He keeps the rules. He's at church every time the doors open. He tithes. He volunteers. He, he does everything. Um, but remember, the devil's masterpiece is the Pharisee, not the prostitute. Okay? Um, there's this. I wish I had it. I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't. I could probably find it on my phone. Hold on a second. Let's see. Okay, just bear with me. I just thought about it now. Uh, it's really, really good, and hopefully I'll be able to find it. Uh, let's see here. Talk amongst yourselves. I'll be with you in a moment. Um, let's see. uh, uh Talk amongst yourselves. I found it. I found it. Okay. um, it's, It's something I read in a friend's book years ago. What would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Over a half century ago... Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse, who lived in Philadelphia, speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, all of the bars would be closed, pornography would be banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing, The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Okay, now that's not typically the way we think when it comes to what would a city look like if the devil took over? Morality doesn't scare the devil. Rule keeping doesn't scare them. Grace, mercy, forgiveness... That's the stuff. Sinners who know that they're sinners, weak people who know that they're weak, desperate people who know that they're desperate. That's a threat to him and everything he's about. Um, Richard Rohr um, puts it like this. Jesus turns a spirituality of climbing... Sorry. Sorry. That's not, yet. That's not yet. Hold on. Hold on. we got to go back. No, that is it. Yeah, that is it. Okay, I'm in the right spot. Okay. <clears throat> Rewind. Richard Rohr puts it like this. Jesus turns a spirituality of climbing, achieving, and cleanliness upside down. In the Bible, the ones who have done it wrong are the ones who are forgiven and transformed. Those who are proud of how they've done it right and feel superior to others because of that are blind to God's grace. This is Jesus' great reversal theme. We think we come to God by doing it right. And lo and behold, surprise of surprises, we actually come to God by doing it wrong. That's backwards. That's not the way we typically think. God will allow us to experience things that show us our need for him. Hard things, humiliating things, bad things, painful things. When you forget that you're needy, that you're a sinner, God has his ways of reminding you. He has his ways of not just knocking Saul off of his high horse, but knocking us off of ours also. He'll do whatever it takes to set us free from the enslavement of self-sufficiency and the delusion of our own goodness. He'll, He'll do whatever it takes to show us who we really are so that we'll finally be able to see who he really is. He'll do whatever it takes. But once we find ourselves knocked to the ground at the end of our rope and feeling desperate, that's when God does the good stuff. That's when he works. All of... Saul's rule keeping and religiosity and zeal for the things of God were not useful to God. Here he is now, knocked off of his high horse in the dirt, blind as a bat, and now he becomes, he becomes useful to God. Um, God didn't leave Saul on the ground. He picked him up. He dusted him off. And he used him powerfully. The rest of the New Testament testifies to how powerfully God used the apostle Paul. We tend to think that the better we are, the cleaner we are, the stronger we are, the more useful to God we are. And so we spend our lives trying to get better, trying to get cleaner, because we think that not only will we get more of God's love and blessings if we become better people, but that we'll be more useful to God. If we get cleaner, if we get better, if we get stronger, we have this mistaken notion that strength and goodness is what makes us effective, that weakness and failure disqualifies us from being useful to God, but not according to the Bible. When we have newcomer brunches here a few times a year, uh, people who are new to the sanctuary and We serve them brunch and we tell them a little bit about the church. And one of the things I always say is that uh, God brought you here for a reason. And it's probably not for the reasons you think. He brought you here because your brokenness and your failures and your weaknesses and your struggles are the stuff that God plans to use to help other people here at the Sanctuary. It's not all of your achievements and, and how good you've been or how effective you've been in other churches or how much money you have or anything like that. It's your, it's your brokenness that he uses. It's the stuff that we don't think he can use, the stuff that he would never use. That's the very stuff that God uses. We have this mistaken notion that it's the good stuff, the the strength and the goodnesses that we think we have that make us useful to God, but that's not what the Bible teaches. This is just one of many stories in the Bible that show no one is more qualified to speak of the significance of sin and the grandeur of grace like the one who is aware of their weakness and sin. Nobody, nobody. Even later in his life, Paul says that he begged God three times to take away his thorn in the flesh, but God refused to do it. Now, we don't know. You've heard me talk about this before. We don't don't know what that is. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. Uh, I'm convinced that the reason the Bible doesn't specify what it is and keeps it generic or unspecified is because that way all of us can relate to it, all of us. Some people said it was his pride. Some people say that he never fully recovered his eyesight. Some people say it was another person. Some people say it was lust. But the Bible doesn't tell us. The last time I preached on this, I got a text from my brother who, after the sermon, uh, was l- listening online, and he said, uh, I think it's going to be really funny when we all get to heaven, and we ask Paul, what was your thorn in the flesh? And he says, it was a thorn in the flesh. I literally told you exactly what it was. I bumped up against a thorn bush, and I could never get that thing out. Um, but nobody, nobody knows what it is. Uh, but in some way, shape, or form, it was debilitating Paul. And so we asked God three times, would you take this thing out of my life? Would you remove this weakness? Would you take this thing away? And God, God refused to do it, not because God wanted him to suffer, but because when we are aware of our weakness, we depend on God's strength and not our own. It's very, very easy for us to start believing our own press and depending on our own strength. And so some of those things that are happening in your life, perhaps right now, the hard things, the difficult things, the painful things, the things that you wish you could wave a magic wand and get rid of, those are the very things, those are the very gifts of God to you that keep you connected to him. Because even if life was great and everything in life was great uh, and we weren't struggling or suffering in any way, shape, or form, um, and we started depending less on God because of that, that's, that would rob us of freedom. That would rob us of hope. But God will do whatever it takes to keep us connected to him because with him, there is hope always. With him, there is freedom always. Um, The very things we think God can't use are the only things that God does use, the very things. So um, if you've been married and divorced, uh, if you've suffered tragedy in some way, if you've really screwed things up, that's the stuff. That's the stuff that will actually be useful to God as he uses you to help other people. It's the hard stuff. I've said this before, but I may be temporarily inspired when someone shares their successes with me, but I am, um, I am moved when someone shares their failures with me. I feel less alone in this world when someone shares their failures with me. So while someone sharing their strength and someone sharing their successes with me may inspire me temporarily, it's when someone shares their struggles and when someone shares their failures with me that I feel less alone. I feel more deeply connected to that person. I feel helped. Um. In God's economy of grace, losing and failing and falling and sin and the pain that comes from those things, that's the base metal and raw material for redemption, that stuff. There's something about the breaking in our lives that helps us to see God in a way we would have never seen him otherwise, ever. I mean, in all of Paul's, Saul's, uh, Bible reading, Bible study. I mean, he went to the equivalent of a seminary back in the day. Um, I mean, he was serious. He had given his life to ministry uh, and he couldn't see God. He was blind to who God is. Uh, and there was something about the breaking in Paul's life, Saul's life. You know, he became Paul, okay? I'm not getting it right. You know what I mean. Uh, There's something about the breaking that happened, the humiliation that happened um, that that helped him see God in a way that he couldn't see him otherwise. Um, At Fallen and Free, the conference we hosted here this past year, I shared that when I was at my worst... I would pour out the depths of my distress to my friend, Paul Zoll. He's been a mentor and a counselor for me, a friend, a father figure for many, many years. And when I was at my worst and I was really going through a dark night of the soul, I would talk to Paul two, sometimes three times a week. um, And I would just pour out the depths of my distress to him. And he'd always respond with the phrase, stick with that. And I didn't really understand what he was talking about at the time. It took me a little while before I realized what he really meant. What he meant was that there's so much to learn in the place of ruin, so much to see at the scene of pain and loss and regret and shame and fear. So don't be so quick to look for a way out. Don't be so quick to try and fix it. Stick with that, is what he said. We tend to make a God out of getting fixed we tend to idolize things like getting better but what if real growth is a growing awareness of our need for help think about that okay think about that for a minute what if what if real growth not what they've told us it is, but what if real growth is a growing awareness of our need for help, a deepening deconstruction of our burdensome sense of self-reliance? What if, what if that's what it is? What if real growth is not some upward climb, but um, sort of a downward plunge into the depths of our need, becoming increasingly aware of our need? What if, what if getting better has more to do with accepting our limitations, <laughs> finally taking off the masks that we wear, and being honest about our unfixedness? When people around me talk like that, I'm helped. When people around me talk like that, I feel ministered to. I feel comforted. I feel, as I said a minute ago, less alone. What if What if life isn't about getting stronger, but discovering God's unconditional love in the middle of our weaknesses? Okay, what if if that's what it is? That's what what Saul discovered. Saul discovered when he was strong and when he was religious and when he was uh, impressive, spiritually speaking, that his growth was stunted. And that's going back to Philippians chapter three. That's why I love the fact that he gives us this impressive religious resume. And then after he says all of that, he says, it's, it's, I consider it all just nothing compared to knowing my need for Jesus and his provision for me. That's what matters. That's what matters. Um. So he discovered that. If you think that God's primary goal for you is that you be an example of moral goodness rather than a trophy of his grace, you'll never be honest about your deepest sins. You'll never be honest about your deepest struggles. You'll, you'll never be honest about your deepest secrets, ever. If you think that God is on a mission that, uh, to make you an example of moral goodness rather than a trophy of his grace, you'll never be honest with yourself, or other people, you'll always feel the pressure to pretend that you're better than you truly are. And that's exhausting. I think it's important for us to know what is God up to in our lives? What's he doing? Is he, is he cleaning us up and making us better and making us stronger in all of the ways that this world defines better and stronger and clean? Uh, or is he breaking us down, deconstructing us, so that we will see who we really are, perhaps for the first time, and then perhaps for the first time, see God for who he really is. Maybe God's mission in our lives is to systematically deconstruct us so that we will finally discover grace and mercy and truth and honesty. Maybe that's the stuff that gives us the strength to actually tell the truth about ourselves instead of hiding. Instead of pretending maybe when we believe that god loves us unconditionally no matter what and that his approval is the only person's approval we actually need maybe when we believe that we'll be more honest about who we really are we'll tell the truth about ourselves we'll we'll take off our masks we'll we'll pretend less i want to read something um in conclusion, that my friend Steve Brown wrote. Steve will uh, be here at the end of July. I don't know if you were here uh, for Fallen and Free, but Steve's talk was my favorite. Uh, he's been a friend of mine for a long, long time. He's known me since I was six years old. Old family friends. Uh, he was our pastor for a while, and then he was my professor in seminary for a while, and then became a just a friend and a colleague um, as I got older, but. He'll be here at the end of July, so make, July 30th, make sure you're in church. Steve's, uh, I never want to miss that guy. Um, I read something yesterday that he wrote that I hadn't read of his before. He says this, and it fits perfectly with this story. God is a merciful God who, in his mercy, rips off our masks and stomps on our hidden agendas. A kind God allows us to sin and sometimes sin big. Well, maybe it would be better to say that a kind God will clearly reveal your sin to you or he will clearly reveal it to others. He will reveal the greatness of your sin to you or allow you to sin greatly. That's counterintuitive. There is a direct correlation between our proclivity to wear a mask and God's proclivity to rip it off. One of the best things that can happen to you is to become aware of your sin. And one of the worst things that can happen to you is an awareness of your obedience. It's exactly what's happening here. This is what, what what did Saul see that he hadn't seen before? He thought he was a good guy. He was proud of his zeal. He was banking on his obedience and his faithfulness to God. And he he was blind to his own sin. He was blind to his own need. He was blind to his own desperation and therefore was blind to God's grace. So I'll read that again. One of the best things that can happen to you is to become aware of your sin. And one of the worst things that can happen to you is an awareness of your obedience As I understand it, he goes on to say, the Bible teaches that sin, rebellion, and disobedience have infiltrated every fiber of God's creation and all of God's creatures. God didn't allow it because he likes it, he hates sin. He hates it because it's destructive and dangerous to everything that is important. He didn't allow it because he wants us to, because he doesn't want us to have a good time. He's not the spoil sport some preachers and religious folks make him out to be. No, God allowed sin for his glory and for your freedom. So for God's sake, don't waste your sin. Acknowledge it. Don't kick against the goads. Carefully plan your agendas of protection or tighten the masks lest anyone see. Besides, God loves you. Because God loves you, he won't let you get away with it forever. And when you're finally busted, you'll be free. God hates how the shame, fear, and guilt of our masks rob us of freedom and joy. He hated it so much that he went through a mess of trouble and pain to set us free. But after you have suffered enough, been embarrassed enough, been wrong enough, and sinned enough... He will hug you and invite you to a party he throws for people who are really free, who don't care much what others think, and who have been deeply loved when they know they didn't deserve it. God's up to something different in your life than you may think. He's up to showing you who you really are, unmasking you, deconstructing you, making you more self-aware, helping you see that you're not all that. But he doesn't just leave us on the ground of our imperfections. He doesn't just leave us on the ground of our inefficiencies and our weaknesses. No, he shows us who he is. And it's when we see ourselves for who we really are that we see God for who he really is. And when we see God for who he really is, we see ourselves for who we really are. And we become increasingly aware of the fact that we can't make it without him. That if grace isn't real, and if it's not true, then we're we're lost. We have no hope in this world or the next. And when When the grace of God becomes the defining feature in your heart and mind, you become softer, you become more patient. All of a sudden, things like the fruit of the Spirit just start happening, not because you're going out and trying to get all this stuff, it's just happening as a result of being marinated in God's mercy and God's grace and God's forgiveness because you know how much you need those things. That's what softens hard hearts and makes you more empathetic and makes you more loving and makes you more caring. It's not reading books on how to be more loving or listening to sermons on how to be more loving. It's not making New Year's resolutions and then checking off the boxes. It's not that stuff. That's not the stuff. It's just becoming increasingly aware of how much grace and forgiveness you need, marinating in that. And then all of a sudden, grace and forgiveness and patience and things like that start flowing out of you into the lives of other people. And that is what makes you useful to God. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast. If you've enjoyed this message, would you consider giving to the work God is doing through the Sanctuary? You can visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com slash give, for more information on ways to give. That's thesanctuaryjupiter.com slash give. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast.